Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Caster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to send.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very interesting founder. I mean, massive seed, massive Series A. I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit when it comes to the hyper growth. I mean, they've hired over 400 people in the last 10 months. I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, the the the, the rocket ship that we're talking about here. But again, we're going to be learning quite a bit when it comes to building, scaling, financing, and get things moving. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Christine, Christine and Christine DeWendel. I hope that I'm able to pronounce that right, but welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alejandro, and you pronounced it perfectly right. I am delighted to be on the show. Fantastic. Thank you, Christine. So so originally, you know, really from Atlanta, and I know that there is a, a little of a combination, international combination. We got Austria, we got, uh, also we got in there the French side too, so... Tell us about your upbringings, Christine, growing up. How was life growing up? Absolutely. So, Alejandro, I like to say that I am half French, half Austrian, and 100% American. So, grew up in Atlanta, Georgia with a French mother, Austrian father, and spent my entire childhood here in Atlanta. And then uh, in my early 20s, moved to Europe and spent 20 years there. And have now recently moved back to Atlanta since a year and a half. Wow. And how, how have you seen like the difference there or, or how would you say that it has shaped you uh, on the way that you're looking at things and, and analyzing things? The fact that you, now you have this worldview no? where you have like the European you know, way of seeing things, the American way of seeing things, which are completely different. So the first element is, yes, I'm coming with a transatlantic perspective. Uh, 10 years of scaling e-commerce companies in Europe and now founding a fintech in the U.S. I'll tell you what, massive similarities between the tech cultures in, on both continents and also huge cultural differences. And so it's actually been a lot more challenging than I expected to navigate the two cultures. Uh, it's also made it a lot more fun because it's, it's, a, it's an everyday uh, experience to be working with teams on both sides of the Atlantic especially at this early stage in uh, Sunday's uh, development. And, and I have to say that you are a very well-prepared uh, founder, I have to say. I mean, not only because 
you have attended some of the best schools in the world, uh, Georgetown, the London School of Economics, your MBA at INSEAD as well, but then also the fact that, um, that you've been in consulting as well. And one of the things that I see a lot is that folks that were in consulting before and, and, and then they go into entrepreneurship, they're very well prepared because I find that consulting, perhaps you know, in your case while you were working at Bain, gives you access to grab a big problem and then break it into really small problems and then you start tackling each one of them. So how would you say that the experience of consulting has really prepared you to be an operator? Well, there are a couple of things. And I always tell young people who come to ask me for advice, what's the best job you can start with? And I like to say that it's uh, you know a top tier management consulting firm. I spent three years at Bain out of university and loved it. So loved it because of the toolkit I was able to develop, come be it public speaking, uh, analytics, presentation skills, and what you just described, just strategic thinking. How do you take a big problem, you cut it up into small issues, and then you you deal with each issue one at a time. So for me, the consulting toolkit has been extremely helpful in every one of my subsequent jobs. And I'll be perfectly frank, the network too. I mean, the peer group I had as a 24-year-old in Paris at Bain uh, has followed me you know, over the past 20 years. And uh, not only are they great friends, but they're also a fantastic network that I can call up anytime, get help from. I have mentors from Bain. I have friends from Bain. So I'm a huge fan of starting off your career uh, as a management consultant. So after Bain, you went to Starwood. And uh, I think that the the INSEAD uh, program perhaps, you know, brought some perspective because right after the program, you kind of like shifted a little bit gear. So so what what happened there? Yes. So two years at Starwood where I got a first taste of the hospitality industry since I'm back in it. And then uh, an MBA with a big focus on entrepreneurship. And frankly, when I left INSEAD, I said, you know what, I've done management consultant consulting. I've done corporate America it's high time I try something entrepreneurial. And um, I just had my first baby and uh, I thought, do I want to start from scratch or do I want to join a fast growing startup? And I got recruited out of INSEAD to join one of the newest rocket internet ventures at the time. So this is 2010. And I joined Zalando, uh, a fashion platform that was just starting up in France that had been around in in Germany for a year and a half. They had about 100 employees. Uh, And I had an absolutely fabulous ride. Seven years, hyper growth. Uh, The company IPO'd. uh, The company grew to about 12,000 employees while I was there. And uh, when I left, we were doing about 4 billion in sales. So phenomenal growth track record. And uh, very entrepreneurial because... I had to start from scratch, um, very hot, fast paced, uh, intense work culture, but, you know, very results driven. And that on top of my Bain toolkit uh, gave me a real playbook for hypergrowth, which has been immensely helpful. And what, what does it look like when you join an organization where there is 100 employees and it goes to 12,000? I mean, there's probably like some some key traits or patterns or, or certain colors on that picture that, you know, now obviously that you've lifted and experienced it, you know, now you know uh, when, when there's something there. So what, what does it look like when an organization is, is, you know, prepared for greatness? So the first thing is you have to have extremely bold leaders. And I only realized this in hindsight, now that I'm doing it again for the third time as a founder, 
you have to have the guts to say, I am ready to hire 50, 100, 200, 300, 400 people, and then 1,000 or 2,000 people while my business model is still being shaped. And I have the guts to say I'm going to expand into new countries, even though my business is still nascent and I'm still figuring out the business model in my core countries. I was in the thick of it you know, 10 years ago when Zalando was starting, but now that I see it with hindsight, I see the courage, the energy, and the vision that uh, the two Zalando founders had at the time, frankly pushed by super bullish investors. And that combination, fast access to capital and a huge vision, and you know the courage and the boldness to go fast and to say you can do anything uh, is, is critical. So I was a passenger at that point, just riding that enormous wave of growth. And um, at the time, it was fun, it was intense, it was crazy, but I didn't realize the weight and the, and the intensity that it was for the founders. And now that I'm on the flip side, trying to do exactly the same thing, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. And I, I have way more, more respect for what the founders at Zalando did and what the, the founders at Mano Mano did. And why did you um, decide to turn page you know, on Zalando? What, 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 what triggered to go to Mano Mano? So... Zalando is a phenomenal company. It had grown significantly. I was there for seven years. I had three kids uh, during those seven years. I showed up with a very small one and I had two additional ones. Um, and I was traveling every week. And I had really enjoyed the first years of chaos and early stage growth. And so after my third baby arrived, I said, first of all, I don't want to travel quite as much. And maybe it's time for a new chapter. It's been a cycle. Um, it's been a fantastic story. The IPO was was very successful. And um, I was running the French business and I wanted to move into a more senior C-level role. And I got recruited by Mano Mano to be their COO. And uh, it was a fantastic opportunity based in Paris, headquarters in Paris, which made way more sense for me personally. And uh, that again was a phenomenal ride. Uh, the, the culture also at Mano Mano was stand out, remarkable culture, incredibly focused on developing people on work-life balance. And there I was, you know, a young mother of three coming out of seven crazy years of travel and hypergrowth, and I wanted something more balanced. And so I found it at Mano Mano. And what was that experience with Mano Mano? I mean, what was your biggest takeaway? The biggest takeaway from Mano Mano is you can achieve hypergrowth and you can go from, you know, 250 million uh, turnover to, you know, several billion and still have an immense respect for people's balance. And that's taught me a lot and also had me aspire to doing the same thing in, in, at Sunday is it's possible, right? You have to pace yourself. You have to find the right balance. You have to hire the right people. But I had an incredible experience, three phenomenal years where the company grew again, very quickly. Uh, we went from about 100 employees to 800 employees when I left. Uh, the top line numbers went through the roof. And we did it while having an immense respect for building a great culture and, and respecting everyone. And I, I say hats off to the two founders at Mano Mano uh, because they were able to set that as, a, as guidelines for the company. So, I mean, here you are. You've scaled multiple organizations. What, what, what took you so long to start your own thing? And not be a passenger, but be the driver. So I love the question, Alejandro. Uh, when I turned 40, I had had 10 years of successful scale-up as a passenger, as you said. 
Um, I had three fantastic kids. I was living in Europe as an American, and I decided with my husband that it was high time to move my three very Parisian kids to the U.S., and uh, this was a very personal decision. Uh, my husband and I said, we, you know, we want them to have everything that comes with growing up in America, which frankly, you don't get when you grow up in downtown Paris. You get a lot of other things, but you don't get it. So this is where the personal element took over. Um, I wanted to have them to have the optimism, the self-esteem, the energy that comes up with growing up in America. And so I said, it's been 10 years. Uh, I really want to start a company. And what better place to do it than the U.S.? So my husband and I both quit our jobs and uh, we moved the whole family to back to the U.S. for me uh, during the pandemic uh, with the idea that I would start a company. And so this is uh, September 2020, so a little over a year and a half ago. And uh, I have absolutely no regrets. It was incredibly hard to leave a company like Mono Mono. So skyrocketing company. I was COO. Frankly, it was my dream job. Love my team. Love my founders. And I uh, love my life in Paris. And again, this goes back to what it's like to be an entrepreneur, what it's like to be bold, what it's like not to be scared to jump uh, into the unknown. I said, all right, I'm going to change countries. I'm going to change industries. I'm going to start a company in the middle of a pandemic. And uh, so far, it's been uh, quite a successful ride. So I, I don't regret that decision one second, but it was a hard one. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then let's talk about Sunday. So obviously you were set on doing something on your own, but how did you come across, you know, the problem, you know, figuring out what a solution could be and, and how did you bring Sunday to life? So this is what I like to tell a lot of people who ask me, you know, how I came up with the idea. Well, I, I, I had this, I was dead set on starting my own company. And uh, for about three months, I thought about different concepts. I explored different ideas. I talked to hundreds of people and uh, I wanted an idea that was, that was big enough. I'd been through, you know, the, the billion dollar story of Zalando, the billion dollar story of Mano Mano. So I wanted something that was really going to have impact. 
And um, I frankly found it very hard. And maybe because I'd been a C-level and not a founder, I was having trouble finding that great idea. And I got a call from a friend of mine based in uh, London, uh, Victor Luger, successful entrepreneur in the restaurant space. And he said, Christine, I have a $100 billion idea. Uh, we are going to change the way people pay in physical retail today. And uh, he said, you just moved to the U.S. I'm looking for a U.S. co-founder. Um, you have you know, a fantastic tech scale-up background. And let's do it together. And it didn't take me much time to get convinced. The idea was brilliant. It was a super simple idea. Uh, everyone I talked to understood it right away. And uh, it took me you know, a couple of days to jump on the bandwagon and say, all right, let's do it. And at that point, it was just an idea, just a PowerPoint. We hadn't raised any money yet. And uh, we set off on this incredible mission to make the payment industry much more simple and easy in hospitality. And uh, that's where we are now, a year later. And you guys have been at it for about uh, one year and three months, which is uh, almost nothing. So, um, I mean, how, how, how do you guys make money here? How, what, what, what is the business model? So what do we do at Sunday? We have built the fastest way for restaurants to pay. We basically remove the friction that goes with payment. And we put a QR code on every table. And we let customers pay in 10 seconds when it used to take them 15 minutes. So the QR code is connected to the point of sale system. You take your phone, you scan the QR code, and your bill comes up. And then you can pay in 10 seconds with credit card, with Apple Pay, Google Pay. Very quick experience. It's a web app to make it faster. And so it's a very seamless, smooth, elegant payment experience. How do we make our money? Well, it's a classic fintech model. So we take uh, a margin on the transaction and uh, it's you know a, a small number of basis points. So we'll take anywhere between 10 and 50 basis points, uh, depending on the deal we've had with the restaurant. And uh, it's a volume game. And so we see it as we get more and more restaurants on board and we're starting to process you know, hundreds of millions worth of transactions. That's where the money's to be made. And um, it's a massive vision because we, we start with restaurants and then we can move into hotels. And then, you know, frankly, no one has really disrupted payments in the physical retail space. And the idea is how do you make it so easy, so simple, and how do you build a B2B2C solution that end consumers recognize and want to use? And so I like to compare this to what Venmo has done in peer-to-peer -peer or what PayPal has done in e-commerce. It's really a way to create a B2C solution, uh, which takes the friction out of, of payments. How, how, big, how big do you think this market is? Sounds massive. I mean, the, the, the total addressable market is trillions. If you yeah. take a look at just the Western world, so take a look at uh, the Americas, take a look at uh, Europe, and then you take a look at restaurants, hotels, bars, nightclubs, and then you can move into certain verticals in, in retail, um, it is several trillion. So it makes it for a really exciting product. And that's also why we've been so successful at building this large vision, because everyone understands that there's a use case uh, for making payments, you know, frictionless. A hundred percent. I mean, when I heard it, I was like, absolutely. You know, why, why the hell would I want to wait for the waiter to bring the check? I mean, it makes total sense. So I, I guess the, the question that comes here to mind is, Typically, when you think about launching something so ambitious like what you guys are doing here with Sunday, 
you know, you would think more around the different life cycles that come with the financing cycles and how you're unlocking those. And typically you would go out, you know, and, and tackle different markets where you're more past like a series B. It sounds like in your guys' case, you're like, no, let's go, let's go all out, you know, right away. So what was that thought process? And also, did that create any any kind of like concerns with investors when you were thinking about fundraising? So not at all. It's a great question, Alejandro. If you think of our product, it was very related to timing. So we put QR codes on tables for payments in restaurants. And if you think two years ago, pre-pandemic, not everyone knew how to use a QR code. Frankly, a lot of uh, mobile phones were not QR code enabled. And most restaurateurs two years ago would never have put a QR code on their table. The pandemic unfortunately went through there and that created a unique opportunity in the market where one, restaurateurs had suffered the worst crisis probably of uh, the last couple decades for the restaurant industry and they were ready to innovate. Two, end consumers knew how to use QR codes. Every mobile phone was now enabled uh, with QR code technology and everyone had seen QR codes on tables for menus. And uh, three, the sanitary situation meant that, frankly, people didn't want to touch uh, a payment terminal anymore. People didn't want to leave their card in a sticky fake leather envelope and use a pen they'd never seen. People didn't want their card to go back of house for five minutes and then come back because they didn't know what someone had done with it or who had touched it. And so the, the touchless factor, plus the appetite from the restaurant industry, plus the expectations that consumers have today, which is to get immediate service, and people are so used to you know, instant gratification uh, via technology, made it a perfect storm. And so when we came in, in uh, March 2021, uh, we had this product which is perfectly adapted. Um, it made perfect sense that this was going to be an execution play, and this was going to be a fast execution play. And so it also helped us raise a very large seed round, so $24 million. And then four months later, uh, as we were getting fantastic traction with restaurants in our core markets, it made it quite simple to explain the size of our vision and the traction we were getting to raise a very large $100 million A round. I mean, crazy seed and crazy series A. Normally, when you, when you raise a round, it takes you like 18 to 24 months to raise the next cycle or the next thing in financing. So here, it was like in no time, you just went at it, seed series A. What, what does that look like? Or, or, or how, how do you get investors at ease with deploying money so fast in the company in such a small period of time? So I like to tell in entrepreneurs who ask me this question a couple things. The first one is for our seed round, we were coming with a great story. So my co-founders are restaurant owners very familiar with the space who had used, tested the product in their restaurants. I was coming from the tech space and I had 10 years of two successful scale-ups behind me. So as far as the investor perspective went, we were seasoned co-founders who actually knew to a certain extent what we were doing. The second piece is we had put together a great team. And so between the series uh, the seed round and the and the A round, we were able to go get some of the best people we knew in the industry just because of our network. 
And, and frankly, we went and got the best people we'd worked with in the past 20 years and said, will you come join this adventure? We've raised a big seed round. We're, we had this huge vision. And that was incredibly helpful for the, the A round because we had a seasoned leadership team. Uh, another factor is you asked it, but you know, what's the total addressable market? And investors look at that every time. How big is the pie? What's the size of the prize? And in this case, as I mentioned earlier, it's enormous. It's one of the you know, largest total addressable markets uh, out there when you look at different pitches for different products. And that's obviously attractive. Um, so the size of the vision and the total addressable market and the leadership team, that together makes a great story for, for raising quickly. No kidding. Now, in terms of not having the capital, I mean, it's, it's time to deploy. So I guess, how many people have you guys hired so far? So we've hired about 400 people. We have about 350 people on the team across seven markets. And uh, that has been an incredible ride in itself. So how do you hire 400 people in 10 months? And how do you hire 400 great people in 10 months uh, with a full remote footprint across seven countries? So that's been a great learning experience for me. And so far, we're, you know, we're, we're pretty, pretty delighted in the way it's played out, um, but it has been quite challenging. So how do you do that, Christine? So I, I said it earlier, the first thing you do is you go hire a leadership team. So you start with the, the senior people and you say, okay, who's the best person in tech I've worked with? Who's the best person in product? Who's the best person in finance? Can I bring them on board? It's obviously easier to bring someone on board who's quite talented when you have a large seed round and you can actually pay them. Um, so you can give them equity, you can pay them, and you have this you know, great vision, this great story to tell. Um, and then once you have somebody leading each one of your departments, then you set the bar really high and you say, well, now it's up to you to hire uh, the next great people on your team. And um, we did a lot of recruitment through network, through you know, former colleagues that we loved working with that we knew were good. And through referrals. So when we'd interview someone who was great, we would say, okay, who are the three best people you, you know, come with? And um, that allowed us to grow that first maybe 100, 120 uh, base. And so we started with a fairly senior team and now have hired more junior people as we went. And that's made it much more manageable for us as co-founders, just because we've had, you know, a fantastic team to support us. I mean, this is incredible. Uh, I guess the the and we were we were talking about it, you know, earlier the the size of the market and I guess where do you think or better yet, imagine if you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world, Christine, where the vision of Sunday is fully realized. What does that world look like? It's very clear, and I always tell this when I pitch to restaurants. That world looks like, you know, three years from now, where every restaurant in the Western world has a digital payment technology on its table. And uh, will that be the QR code or will that be some sleeker, more lean, elegant technology? We don't know yet. But certainly most of those tables will be Sunday tables. And uh, we'll have been able to go in almost every country and get the majority of restaurants. And so that world will basically look like one where you never have to ask for the check anymore. And I always when I explain this to restaurants or journalists or investors, I always raise my hand and say that gesture of trying to find the waiter, make eye contact, ask them to bring you the check. 
that will have disappeared. The same way today, uh, when you take an airplane, it's second nature that you have your ticket on your phone, um, or when you take a, a train. Uh, and the same way today, when you take an Uber, you don't ever think about paying anymore. It just happens seamlessly and, and almost magically. That should also be happening in the, the hospitality space. And so that's exactly what we're out to do. How do we disrupt payments in the hospitality space to make it the seamless, most easy experience for end consumers possible? And in your case, one thing that is saying very interesting, and I'm sure that you know there's going to be a lot of female founders that are listening you know, to us and, and watching us that that they're going to get inspired. They're going to get inspired because, you know, here you are in a rocket ship that, that you're pushing. You have a supportive and loving husband. You have three kids. How do you manage to really push everything, you know, at, at the same time so successfully, Christine? Alejandro, I wake up every morning and ask myself the same question. The first, the first answer is I am intimately convinced you can't do it all at the same time. And uh, I'm not going to lie to you. It is challenging. It is taxing. I am in airplanes every week. I am uh, cheerleading for my team. I'm speaking to journalists. I'm working with my team. I'm selling to restaurants. I'm speaking to investors. It's a lot. Um, but how does it work? Hands down, it's my support network. First and foremost, my husband, who's fantastic and who takes a large share of the, you know, the family responsibilities. Um, it's also the rest of my support network, uh, the incredible women who surround me, who help me out from, you know, my babysitters to, uh, my mother. And, um, you know, when people say it takes a village to raise children, uh, that, you know, I, I have a pretty sweet village around me to help me make the ecosystem work. The other thing is setting priorities. I am ruthless about timing and, uh, I know I will be home for dinner, no matter what, and uh, spending time with my family in certain uh, windows is my utmost priority. And that allows me to find some balance. So do I have any time for self-care? No, let's face it, I don't. And I'm certainly convinced I'm going to find it again, but I don't right now. But do I have time for my kids? Do I have time for my husband? And do I have time for the business? Yes. Um, and so that's sort of the trade-off I've made is... Um, trying to find that balance right now the, the the person who's losing out is you know good me time but it'll come back and frankly this is so much fun uh that right now uh you know after year one it's it's absolutely worth it i hear you incredible so christine imagine you know obviously now you are the driver you know of this incredible a rocket ship with sunday but you've done it also uh before with salando and with mano mano I guess imagine if you had the opportunity of of time traveling, you know, back in in time and and you were able to have a sit down with that younger Christine, maybe that younger Christine that is thinking about launching a business. What would be that piece of business advice that you would share with that younger Christine and why, given what you know now? I think what I mentioned it earlier, but what I've learned the most is in order to build a company at this scale, you have to be bold. The wonderful thing about working with my co-founder, Victor, is he is a successful second-time entrepreneur, and he is fearless. And uh, partnering with someone who has that level of vision, that level of ambition, and uh, is willing to take risks, willing to, to think always bigger, um, is, is quite exciting. And so I think 
it's something I couldn't have imagined um, when I was, you know, just an executive uh, in in hyper growth companies that being fearless and uh, that bold is is critical for building a large business like the one we're trying to build right now and for disrupting an industry like we're trying to do. I'm lucky to have stumbled upon it uh, by partnering with Victor uh, at, you know, age 40 and, and building Sunday. But I don't think I realized how important that was with starting a company and finding someone you want to partner with. Absolutely. So um, this is incredible, Christine. For the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? LinkedIn is fantastic. I love talking to uh, other founders. I love talking to women who are looking uh, to innovate, to shake up their careers. And so it's very easy to find me on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, Christine, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It's been an honor to have you with us. It's been an absolute pleasure, Alejandro. Thank you for inviting me on the show. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.